welcome to More Creative. I'm your host, Ashley Wiley, and today we talk with Nick Spradlin, an audio mixer and sound designer at DeFacto Sound. Throughout our conversation, Nick shares his unique background in music and how it led him from a master's in percussion performance to a career designing for films, TV, and games. We talk about how sounds are created for production, how you can manipulate viewers' emotions through sound, and much more. Being a sound designer is something I'd always said I'd like to do in a second life, so it was amazing to be able to talk with Nick about his passion and career. I hope you all enjoy this one. Nick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Of course. So, growing up, did you always have an interest in music? Not from a very early age. I guess when I was 10 years old, I got a drum set and followed the the drumming path for a very long time through music school from there. But as a as a young kid, you know, I was just I I liked music and I liked the movies and I was always into the speakers and the surround sound that my dad set up in the basement and that kind of thing. I remember that from a, from very early and then yeah, when I was 10 years old, I got a drum set and played all through high school and ended up going to music school and that's how that went. And that was that was kind of my first career. <laughs> So you decided to pursue your education in percussion performance, is that right? Yes, I was a basically a classical percussion performance major, and I got a master's degree in it. Played in orchestras a lot, played in wind ensembles a lot, uh, did a lot of what's called percussion ensemble or percussion group, chamber music based around unique and interesting collections of percussion and uh, drums and all that stuff. And uh, also on the side, I taught drumline along the way. When I was in high school and and in college, I was in drum and bugle corps and always did the marching bands wherever I was going to school. I was a tenor drummer, if anybody knows how drumlines work. Uh, But then I became a drumline teacher and did that for 10 years and did that all through uh, music school. And yeah, by the time I got to my undergraduate degree, I was focused on music, not on sound design, not on audio post, which I do now, but I was focused on music. So what ultimately led you to pursue your master's after you got your undergrad degree? I think I still had the dream of being a rock star (laughs) or a a college professor or, you know, just a professional player. I just wanted to pursue it. And then I got through another two years of of, uh, uh, my master's degree and decided to do something else. But yeah, so I would have, uh, with the master's, I would probably have gone into assistant teaching jobs or into professional gigging. But I chose not to follow that path. So what changed? I guess the main thing is I, through the course of graduate school, I realized that I really liked all the things surrounding the music as much as the music. And so there's usually a story or imagery or history that accompanies music, you know, like especially in kind of academic music. There's never, it's never just the music itself. There's always a story to go along with it. And I really liked that. And it it took me a while after I got out of grad school to finally click with that I wanted to do sound design. But it kind of felt like coming home because I realized, you know, my favorite hobby is movies and setting up surround sound speakers in my living room and all these things. And I had done quite a bit of um, playing with electronically augmented pieces, you know, where you might have a, an acoustic instrument and a digital processor or a computer doing something alongside. And so... I was always kind of the person doing those things, and I, I guess that's where I transitioned from school, uh, really, is that I, re- I realized I loved the technology stuff and loved movies, and I wanted to go 
back to that. And so I'm still using my musical education in terms of my ears and my knowledge, uh, but I've just kind of let go of the performance side of it, I guess. Wow. So how does music school develop those types of skills? I think one thing is just timbre of instruments. Mm. Besides learning the basics between this is a flute and this is a saxophone and all that stuff, you know, when you're in a larger ensemble or a smaller ensemble, the way that a composer can combine those different sounds and get basically an infinite palette of new sounds, or if you play it with a new technique or combine things in a new way, you get a new sound. And studying that and listening to that definitely helps me now as a sound designer. So I'm glad I went down that path. And then uh, some more practical things too, like a lot of uh, video is cut to music. And so the sound design needs to be able to fit into music in a musical way. And so, you know, sometimes we need to bridge that gap between what is maybe more of a practical sound, just something that's on screen happening and what's a more cerebral or cinematic sound that needs to kind of live somewhere between sound and music. Maybe it's both. It sounds very complex. <laughs> um, I, I guess it's uh, it's maybe just uh, obscure. It's hard to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around the different levels of sound that you need in order to create an environment. So after receiving your master's, what was the next step for you? I spent a couple of years teaching um, and gigging around as a percussionist and also started to freelance in audio post-production. And I met a lot of student filmmakers who had different projects going on and offered, and I did a lot of work for free to gain experience. And I did a lot of studying. I, you know, I subscribed to Mac Pro Video and Linda and all these things so I could get caught up on how to use Pro Tools and how to use Isotope and, and kind of all the standard software stuff that I was a little bit behind on. I took myself to school basically to learn that practical stuff and then just found any project I could. Sometimes I, when I was still teaching marching band, they would need sound effects that they would layer into their uh, field shows and things like that. And they, they were designing a full room and they said, well, I need sounds all over the room. You know, I can, I can figure out how to get speakers here and there. Can you make sounds to come out of the speakers? And I said, yeah. And so that was a, that was a unique project. And I've done some stuff like that now professionally years later. I think that was, gosh, that was many years ago. It was like one of the first <laughs> few projects I did. I'm, I'm remembering that. But, and so I did that for a couple of years and built my reel and built my experience and uh, eventually applied to an apprenticeship uh, at DeFacto Sound where I'm currently working and I, you know, succeeded, made it through the apprenticeship and got brought on full time. So here I am today. So one of your beginner positions was working as a recording engineer. Is that right? Yo, yeah, I did a lot of um, freelance music recording towards the end of grad school and, and um, for those next couple of years. And I still do it occasionally, but I did uh, I interned at a recording studio. That's, you know. You know, it's kind of a rite of passage. I think anybody that wants to get into sound is going to do that at some point. So I interned at a, a commercial recording studio where they did a bunch of uh, pop bands, country bands, rap songs, big variety of stuff in uh, in Kansas City. Uh, and then I also uh, interned at a large classical music festival and learned a ton and made some great friends there. Yeah, just basically doing those things in the interest of building a network, gaining experience, uh, while also doing all the freelance gigs that I could at the time to make it. (laughs) 
Wow. So what does a recording engineer do? How does it differ from a sound designer? So in terms of classical music recording, it's uh, showing up and hanging microphones all around an orchestra or any other kind of ensemble to capture the sound of the concert. And then there's usually a mix involved where you'll take those different microphones and mix them together to make what is the the record, basically. And so kind of more on the front side of production, I think, is where where recording lives. And then you have some post-production when you're mixing the tracks you've recorded. When I do a project now, I get a package of uh, a video and dialogue and maybe a few sound effects that a video editor has already selected. And then I will augment and refine those things and then add on all the new sounds that need to be added. And so now I work primarily with a sound library and uh, editing software. And then when I do record, it's usually for props, foley, things around the house, or some kind of unique element I may need to do the sound design. So my life before as a sound recordist was tons of microphones and lots of capturing other people's sound. And now my life as a sound designer is more editing and creating new sounds to go with other people's visuals. So what is your method for adding sounds into your projects? It really depends on the project. Every every project is going to have a different need. I learned that from my dad, who is a graphic designer. He makes art all day long, but it's not his art. It's art for somebody else, right. art, art according to somebody else's vision. And as a sound designer, my life is a lot like that. So uh, every project will come in, and it already has a vision. They want to tell a certain story, or they have a certain angle, and I need to tell that story the best that I can. If I'm doing something like a short film, I did one recently, and it was about a uh, former coal miner, and he had lived this really hard life. And visually, it was shot with like these very dramatic shots, and the color on it was very dramatic and extremely moody and and really kind of moving. And so from that, I decided I wanted to go a little bit more impressionist with the sound design. And so there's, of course, the sound of some things you see on screen, but the soundtrack of that really ended up being dominated by whooshes and rumbles and more ethereal sounds that created a mood and a feeling for this story rather than literally you know you see somebody sitting on a couch and they move you put the sound of their shirt in that wasn't really what this this short film needed and so I felt that that film needed that approach and they ended up being really happy with it and I really liked it the result as well something that might be different is um You know, in the same day, I might get an ad where people are carrying groceries into the front of their house and there's voiceover that says, are you hungry today? You know, and so and there's a a fun sounding track underneath. And then the sound effects that I need to add to that, I just have to evaluate what's there, first of all, and what is going to add to this value. Maybe it's the grocery bag. Maybe it's the keys jangling. If there's a certain product that is the focus of this ad, then I need to make sure the sound of that is just totally perfect and is very clear. So those are two contrasting examples, but every project is different and needs a different approach. And so as soon as I get it, then I have to decide what that is. Wow, that is really incredible. I mean, if you're doing like a movie or a short film, for instance, do you just sort of watch through the entire thing and then and get a notepad and say okay this rock moved here we need a sound for that and etc etc is it kind of like that going through 
Yeah, yeah, it can be that granular. Wow. I've definitely read in kind of the old manual of how to do film sound, you know, the spotting session where you just sit down with the director and literally do that. At every second of the film, you write down what you want there. And that is sometimes done, but usually it's a little more vague. I'll get a film and they'll, it'll come with notes from the director that says, I want to feel this, highlight this here, make sure to bring this out. And so they'll give me some direction and then I'll watch it and make my own notes that uh, respect their vision and, and I can imagine a way to achieve that. I don't get too granular usually because if I know that this scene needs footsteps, I don't, I don't really need to mark down where every single footstep sound is going to go. I can go in and just kind of do that. I can improvise that a little bit. But I, I will make decisions uh, such as this section will need very realistic sounds of people and foley. And then maybe this section will need very cinematic, ethereal, and emotional sounds. You know, I'll make those, I'll make those big broad choices at first. Have you ever worked with a scene where there was a circumstance being portrayed where you weren't exactly sure what it was supposed to sound like, like something you'd never personally experienced before? Yeah, uh, definitely. Let's see, I did a movie about grandparents passing away, and there was some like oxygen tanks and some different medical devices that uh, had a really particular sound. And so we have to just do research, go to YouTube, find somebody using one, and then try to recreate that sound usually because those don't exist in a library. So I'll have to redesign it. Maybe it has a pump. I'll go find a pump and alter it and edit it to make it sound like what's on screen. And maybe it has a beep. And so I'll have to go recreate the beep. And so those things definitely happen. And then, you know, the, the full variety of cars and motorcycles and, and there's there's can be a large research component to editing something like that. I did a little action film and uh, they had a Piper Cub airplane and they were very concerned that it was, that the sounds I used were from a Piper Cub airplane, you know, hmm. because I think a lot of times there are some, there's some, uh, some beautiful lies that happen in sound design sometimes. And <laughs> the coolest sounding plane might be a World War II Mustang that goes zoom like over your head but that is not at all accurate to that plane that's on screen and and sometimes you do that there's a lot of times where you put in a more exciting sound to give the scene that energy but sometimes you also need to be sensitive to when do we need to be very accurate and very real a major part of what you do is also guiding the emotions of the people that are watching a scene how do you bring emotion into sound? I think I get that from music. There's a lot of compositional elements that can be borrowed over into sound design. If things are happy, the in, in music, you're typically going to have melodies that are working upwards. You're going to have lots of bright sounding instruments, cymbals and flutes and clarinets and trumpets. And if things are sad, they're typically going to move downward. You're going to have tubas and cellos and basses and deep bass drums. And I think in sound design, you can apply that same thing. You can bring out the sparkle of the sun and the birds chirping and leaves in the trees rustling. And maybe there's a cricket or, or, or something, you know. And those all those are very bright and high sounds that are pleasant to hear in the opposite sense, you know, if it's a dark scene, you have a low rumble, you have 
probably something cinematic, you know, maybe just just a low drone of sound. Um, for that film I did recently uh, about the coal miner, this community had been totally desolated by mountaintop removal mining. And so I made a point to not include any birds in the soundtrack. I wanted it to feel like wildlife had left. And so something uh, something like that will give you an unconscious sense that something is not right here. I think birds in, birds in particular give people a sense of uh, calm and home and safety. And so that was uh, why I wanted to admit that. But it's hard to it's also hard to put a finger on on that and how to put a feeling to a scene, you know, because one sound may work perfectly in this film, but if you do that if you try that same trick in another one it doesn't work. Wow. So when you have to bring music in to create a sort of feel, is that something that you're typically given by like a director that has worked with like a musician for a particular movie or is that something you also have to create? Most music uh, these days is uh, from a music library. Hmm, interesting. So something like Musicbed or Artlist or American Public Media. There's, a, there's lots of different music libraries out there, and composers will upload their tracks, and then when you need something, you can just go and search for the mood and the style that you want and download it, and there you go. Wow. <laughs> and so sometimes we're involved in the selection of that, um, like we have our studio has a podcast and so when we're producing our own show we will go and do that same process select it and sometimes we'll compose ourselves for uh, advertisements and films and a lot of the the client work that comes in the music choices need to be made quickly and the sound effects choices need to be made quickly so that the video editor and the producer will typically decide those things and put them together and when it comes to me I'll have a it's called an OMF, which will include a bunch of separate elements that are the music, the dialogue, any sound effects from set, maybe some production sound, and then some sound effects that they put in if they laid out some big hits that they want. And I'll use that as a guide. And then I'll edit everything and kind of remaster the music to fit with the spot and edit all the voices and process everything so that it sounds great and uh, do a lot of adding sound design. And, and the sound library is, is our in-house library. Or something that I make custom for the spot. It all always depends. Going back to your previous discussion on bringing emotion into the sound, is that something that you just sort of have an innate feel for? Is that something that you can learn how to do? I think it is for sure. And probably the best way to learn it is by listening and observing previous work. Whether that be any genre of music or any genre of film, just watching and seeing how people did it is uh, is the best is the best teaching tool because it's so context based. You might notice that this particular set of sounds that one sound designer chose might be exactly the same set of sounds that another sound designer chose for a different movie, but they have a completely different feel. And I think that's sort of how I started translating my musical background into a sound design background. Is that I would watch a film and start to think about what are the component parts of that sound that got the end result now when you watch movies and shows are you able to do that without paying too much attention to the sound and getting distracted by what they decide to use <laughs> sometimes yes and sometimes <laughs> no <laughs> i think there's an old adage it says if the sound team has done their job right you don't know that they are there if we make sounds that are 
perfectly believable, then you should be carried away in the story. You shouldn't be thinking about the sound when you're watching it. You should mm-hmm. be you should be carried away. And we want to contribute to that. So if we've done our jobs right, then you don't notice us. But I, one of one of my personal pet peeves is like if I'm watching, say, Planet Earth or something like that, and a and a, a little animal is on screen and you can hear them eating. Sometimes that's cool, but also sometimes I can just hear a sound person on a microphone eating a eating a chip. You know, it's just so obviously oh that to me. Or <laughs> when a little when a little animal blinks, it's like that doesn't make us. We don't need to hear that. There's and so. Sometimes that will take me out of the action. Wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's, I mean, and you want to put those things in there. You want to give that hyper real sense. And that's something else that sound can offer. You know, if, if the camera is a mile away with you know, a helicopter with a zoom lens, the only sound that would have been recorded is the drone or the helicopter sound that the camera is mounted to. And so you, even on those nature documentaries, you have to put all those sounds back in. And so you can bring back that sense of reality where sound wasn't able to be captured before. And film sets are often like that. You know, you need everybody to be quiet. You unplug the refrigerator in the domestic scenes. You have a generator running to turn the lights on when they're outside doing something dramatic. And so you have to replace all those sounds that don't work for the story with sounds that do work for the story. But yeah, sometimes I notice things where I'm like, oh, why did they put that sound in? (laughs) I guess that also works as like a learning moment for you as well. Yes, it does. (laughs) Another thing that happens is similar to the way that there are music libraries, uh, I'll hear the same song get used over and over again in certain genres. But there's also sound effects libraries. So we make a lot of our own custom stuff, but we also buy sound libraries from uh, a variety of places. And sometimes I'll hear, particularly with the popular libraries, I'll hear those sounds appear in a, a major show. And it, that also takes me out of the action. You know, you kind of, you peeked behind the curtain and it takes me out of the story for a minute. Like, oh, I know that's cinematic hit number five. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've seen that on a couple of sitcoms before where I'm like, oh, wait a second. This is like a huge deja vu. I remember this exactly in another show. And I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, somebody made this. And it kind of takes you out of the realism. Yeah. And with the music library tracks, I think if you search around YouTube, you can find kind of compilations where people have found that all the 40 different ads that use this same song and just cut between them all and it's kind of it's weird to watch <laughs> <laughs> so when you are creating new sounds like for instance you watch through something you say okay i, I need to make a, a sound of like a, a boot hitting something for instance or rocks clinging together how do you know what to use to create those particular sounds that you're missing if I can, if I can put boots on and go walk around in the house or in the backyard and record it, I will do that. But I may not have access to specifically what is on screen. And so that's where sound libraries come in. And that's why we need to work with those. But sometimes it, it does come down to finding odd props around the house. Like I needed the sound of these really chunky Christmas lights. Uh, somebody, you know, stringing lights up around the house and I needed to have a sound for that. And so what I ended up with was a Sharpie cap and my Apple headphones and the the way that those plastics kind of click together just sounded right. And so, what? I, yeah, so I did a bunch of performing with those little props and that ended up fitting in the scene. And it wasn't Christmas lights at all, but that's what ended up going in that in that video. So. Oh my God. So do you just kind of say, hey, I've got this stuff laying around. Let me just kind of clink it together and see if anything sounds right. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you want to make your best guess, and right. sometimes I know what's going to work. But sometimes you have to do that trial and error and find what is going to work and what's not. That's really cool. I mean, I'd say that's a talent for sure to be able to create sounds that sound like one thing, but they're created from totally different objects. Well, thank you. I'll I'll take it. I'll take that as a talent. It's yeah. it was actually a, a complete accident, really. You know, I tried <laughs> half a dozen other things. And that was the thing that finally worked and, and stuck. I think Mark Mangini said this. I hope I don't get this quote wrong. It was that one of the <laughs> sound designers, one of the sound designers' greatest tools is like repurposing mistakes as genius and then taking credit for it. <laughs> and so that, that there's a there's a lot of, of that in sound design, trying mm. things and discovering and put it to picture and see what it see what the result is and see if it works or not and when Mm. it works you look like a genius but it really was just maybe a random guess yeah well definitely from my perspective anything that is able to create an accurate atmosphere from just everyday household objects just looks like magic to me so when you do create a sound like that how much of that actual final product is the original sound you recorded like the um, apple headphones and the sharpie cap versus the final product with like all the digital alterations do you find that you change everything pretty drastically (laughs) i'm gonna say again it depends Mm -hmm. Uh, so for something like a documentary i probably won't do as much creative sound design there's usually a, a pretty extensive track from that actual place and even if it doesn't sound the best you want to preserve that kind of gritty realism and so depending on genre, I may really tiptoe over the production sound and just add in just the little bits that it needs. Or for something else, if it's like an advertisement for a tennis shoe or a car and it's very shiny and very high end, then absolutely every single sound is replaced and polished and refined and processed. Wow, that's really interesting just to have the the final product and the vision of what the entire thing is supposed to be dictate to what extent something is digitally altered but it makes a lot of sense yeah and it one of the one of the ways that i'm able to do that confidently is because i have such a great team of people that i get to work with Mm -hmm. and we are always constantly sharing our work with each other and saying does this sound cool is this believable and uh it, that is that is probably the most valuable thing I have is that I have people to to bounce ideas off of and get feedback from. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you are creating environments for other people. So having that feedback, I'm sure it's definitely helpful. Yeah, because I, I can get too excited about some special audio technique that I used and <laughs> then I, I share it with a fellow sound designer and they say, what, uh, what are you what are you doing here? <laughs> I don't I don't get it, man. And so you go back to the drawing board. What does a typical project for a sound designer look like? Where do you come in in the process of a project? And what does that time frame look like for you as a sound designer? We're usually at the end. For me, I work outside of Hollywood. So I don't really work on features. I work on a lot of short films. I work on a lot of advertising, a lot of trailers, and uh, our own... Um, our own podcast, which is, I don't remember if I've said uh, 20,000 Hertz is our studio's podcast. And so a typical day in the morning, I'll come in and I'll have an advertisement to work on. And maybe that's a 30 second ad for a TV show. 
And so I'll have about four hours to take the different dialogue bites from the show and clean out any extra noise and make the tone of them sound like they all match together. Mm -hmm. And then same thing with the voiceover and then layer in the music and, and level the music so that it all fits together and then do any sound design that it may need. You know, if it's a show about gold mining, I'm going to have lots of rocks and sparkly gold dust sounds. Or if it's a show about fishing, then there's going to be tons of ocean and, you know, water and all these different things. So all those get added in and get mixed. And I have just a few hours to do that. Those typically have many variations. There's a 30 second and then a, a 15 and then a five second version of kind of the same material. And those have a short, uh, short turnaround. So, you know, kind of four to six hours and the whole project is done. But it starts from that, uh, from that OMF file where I have a collection of the sounds that have already been decided, you know, the voices, the music, maybe a couple of sound effects. And then I refine all that and add all the additional sounds that need to be in there. And then for longer projects, it starts in a similar way. I get, the, I get that OMF file with all the different elements, uh, but I may have a week to do a short film instead of instead of an afternoon <laughs> <laughs> for those longer films i think um i follow what i think is a pretty uh, conventional workflow from you know borrowed from film uh hollywood film you know where i'll do all of the dialogue editing and then i'll do all of the foley editing and then i'll do all of the sound design and then i'll do all of the mixing i'll kind of divide the larger project up into those segments um because i think most of the audio world kind of thinks of projects divided up that way and so even if I'm the only person working on it, I'll still try and divide up the work in that way. Awesome. Do you have a favorite project you've ever worked on? I have a bunch that stick with me. I really like the short films where you get time to dive into different ideas and 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 sit with people's emotions and, you know. Do you have a favorite part about what you do? One favorite part. I really I really love all of it. I feel extremely lucky to have the job that I have. If I had to pick one favorite part, maybe I would say I love speakers and 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 listening and I really am drawn to the technical stuff. That's not the majority of what I do, but I just I guess that's what I tend to do, you know, in my time outside of work as well. You know, I set up my home theater system in my living room and kind of get to sit back and really enjoy those um those favorite films and things like that. So I think I think that's my favorite part, but I really am happy doing every part of my job. Jeez, I mean, what a position to be in where you really have a, a passion that you've been able to turn into a career. That's really amazing. Yeah, I and I feel incredibly lucky to have that. Leaving music school and kind of stopping playing, you know, kind of leaving it behind was really scary and I had a lot of family who said, are, are you sure about this? You, know, you just spent a lot of money on school and a long time studying, and you're just, you're just going to do something else? I said, yeah, I, th I think I am. I think I need to make this, make this jump. Wow. Well, it seems like it, it was very successful for you. So now that you've been in sound design, and you, you sort of touched on it just now, do you still have like music and percussion as a as a hobby you do on the side still or has being a sound designer made that a little bit more challenging I I think I have to say no I don't I'm getting into a little bit a little bit more now I'm trying to play a little bit of piano and I definitely like to do composing to the extent that I need to 
uh, at work and for the different projects I'm working on. But I don't have a drum set here. I don't have any instruments. I don't have a I don't have a music studio set up. I just have my post production studio. So sometimes I miss it, but also sometimes I am really glad that I can hit save. And, mm-hmm. and my, when I come, I can hit the save button, and when I come back, the work is just the same. Mm-hmm. But when I was playing, percussion can be very very physical, and so. If you come in and your arms are tired and you haven't warmed up, it may take you an hour of warm up and kind of reconditioning your hands to get back to the same performance ability you had yesterday. Wow! And, and that was that was always very frustrating for me. And and you push that envelope as you as you practice and as you study, and over time, you know, your kind of base level of skill gets higher over time. Like I can still pick up some sticks and, and play a few things, but it was always a challenge. It was always, always really frustrating as a musician, but, and now I just, I only lose work if, you know, the hard drive crashes or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, that's really interesting to hear your perspective on that because you always sort of hear that people that have a career that very closely aligns with a previous passion and a route they originally thought they were going to take you don't always see that the hobby and the career both carry through over time. You sort of see that one takes precedence over the other. So it's it's interesting to see how it's happened for you. Yeah, I think I have definitely, I, I think I'm leaving my musical past behind more all the time. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it comes back in waves. You know, if, if we're, um, we just did a Halloween show about the DS Ray, And so... I got to pull out a lot of my music history knowledge and 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 get to do a little bit of uh, playing and composing for that episode. So that was a lot of fun. Cool. So looking forward in your career, do you have a type of project that you'd really love to work on someday? I think I would love to do a feature film someday. You know, I, I as a kid and and even now as a fan, I still always watch all the special features and. You know, how did how do they make the sound of the lightsaber? You know, I've watched mm-hmm. every video I can find on that. And uh, <laughs> those those sounds are so iconic and are, are so exciting and mysterious. And, you know, where did this what universe did this even come from? You know, mm-hmm. especially with all these new these new movies that are coming out and just just what they can do with the visual effects. There's always more and more things to imagine and, and new sounds to imagine. And so I would feel like I completed my career if i designed a sound that that inspired somebody else to get into sound you know Mm -hmm. like like those sounds did for me when i was watching the special features as a kid i think i would feel like i had completed my career but now as a professional i know how hard it is to do that and how how really it gives me an even deeper appreciation for great sound design because it's not that hard to get going and make some sounds and make things exciting but it's incredibly hard to make things that are really unique and really iconic. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to be able to understand that people created sounds from like a fantasy universe or something like Star Wars that then created that entire universe for you and made it real. It's pretty crazy to yeah. think that people could come up with stuff like that. So I do have a couple questions that I like to ask everybody that comes on the podcast to end. If you could choose any profession other than the one you currently have, and you didn't have to worry about money or going back to school or anything, what would you choose? I think I would be a race car driver. 
You were the second person that's been on here that said they wanted to be a race car driver. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. So what's your what's your thought behind that? I just went to car shows all the time as a kid growing up, and it was just something that you know was around. And I have an appreciation for the engineering side of it, and mm-hmm. and, and the how precise they have to be with everything, just shaving grams off of every component of the car. And and then um, I've got a little racing video game set up, and it's just it's just exciting, you know, it gets to race around. And I really like uh, road racing and Formula One and. Mm-hmm. The endurance uh, GT car racing. I lo- I'm a big fan of those things. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't know why I don't know why I'm drawn to it. It's just I just think it's cool. <laughs> yeah, it is cool, and what an adrenaline rush for sure. So the second question is, do you have any advice on how to turn your passions into a career? Yeah, I think I do. I think I would say that the biggest challenge is going to be letting go of doing it just for the love of doing it and then having to do it on a calendar. Hmm. Um, And that's something I struggled a lot with in music at first. And then I I struggled with it a little bit when I got into sound design is that you just want to come in and follow your creativity in the direction that you want to go, but you may not get paid doing that. You know, you need to please your clients. So I would say start that by sitting, sit down, on a schedule, you know, or with a framework for your passion and do it regularly and do it like work, even if you're not doing it for work yet. And just keep at it, you know, be, be patient and you'll, you'll find a break one day. I think I learned a lot more than I realized having a, a parent who was in graphic design and seeing them do that work in a rush for somebody else's vision. And that can be, that's one of the biggest challenges when you finally get into commercial work is that you have to find a way to love this activity without being too attached to the project. I think I had, I think that's maybe why I left music. Ultimately, I would get bored with piece that I had to play and just, I couldn't, I couldn't love the process. I loved my choices in music, but I didn't love other people's choices in music. But Mm. with sound design, I haven't had that. I've been able to see other people's vision and enjoy that and, and try and add to it and make that the challenge. And so I think that's why I'm happy with my job. It's an excellent perspective and something that is pretty rarely talked about, especially with creative fields and anything within like movies and film, short film, etc., is that everything that you're making is not yours unless you're like a, a rock star or, or something like that. But learning to love the process, I think, is is what can tell you yourself that, hey, this is something that I actually do want to pursue as a career because I could love it no matter what. So that's it's really cool to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, it kind of clicked for me one day that think of your ultimate favorite movie and you watch the behind the scenes that wasn't somebody's ultimate creative work from the you know beginning of their career like they got a contract and they came in and, and did their day-to-day job and they and what resulted was this thing that was so moving and yeah I, I realized it was a different outlook than I had approached it with I kind of viewed art and creativity as this nebulous thing and I think in reality it needs more of a you need to be it and exist in that state and and be able to turn it on on a, on a calendar, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to make it and do it as a job. Wow. That's, 
really, really solid advice, especially for the industry that, that you're in and any creative industry for sure. Well, Nick, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and, and learning about everything that you do. I just, I just find sound design absolutely fascinating and it was incredible to hear about you. So thank you for sharing. Well, thank you very much for having me. I hope, uh, hope I said something valuable. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Nick, links are in the description down below. If you like the show, please leave a rating, subscribe, and comment on whatever platform you listen on. It really helps out the show. For more information, you can find us on Instagram at The More Creative or on YouTube at The More Creative Podcast. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next time.